text for this morning is from Acts 5, the verses 33 through 42. And so let's continue our reading in Acts 5, starting with verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew some of the people after him and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when he had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. After the sermon, we will sing from hymn 53, the stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Beloved congregation, brothers and sisters, some people are very persuasive. They have golden tongues which drip with honey. They sound reasonable and can sweep you along with their rhetoric. They know how to choose their words and how to convince others of a certain course of action. You find such people all over, especially amongst politicians. They are often elected because they are such able spokesmen for their cause. They know how to convince of the righteousness of their position. And as such, that's not wrong. God gave different abilities to different people. But when you use your power of persuasion for the wrong end, then you will not bring peace or promote God's cause. That's the case with Gamaliel. After the apostles had been arrested by the Jews and brought in front of the Sanhedrin, also known as the council, as translated in the ESV, when they were brought in front of that council, for boldly proclaiming the gospel of Christ, the Jewish leaders were furious. The disciples had been told not to do this, but they did it anyway. These men wanted to shut them up. It says in verse 33 that they were so furious that they wanted to kill them. Gamaliel 
the Pharisee knew that this would not be a good idea. He was afraid of the consequences, and so he has to calm them down. He must dissuade them from their course of action. This is exactly what he does. He is very persuasive. What he tells them sounds all so reasonable. And because of his advice, they change their minds. Cooler heads prevail. They agree that his advice is good. At the first glance, it seems that Gamaliel gives not only good advice, but even godly advice. For he warns them that if they are going to do what they are planning to do, that they might even be opposing God. You would almost think that he might secretly be on the side of the apostles and even that the Holy Spirit moved him at that moment to say what he did. Indeed, later some writers spread the rumor that Gamaliel did at one point convert to Christianity. Certain Photius even asserted that Gamaliel was later baptized by Peter and by Paul. However, scholars refuted that story. There's no evidence of that. But it does show that many Christians were much impressed with this man. Maybe you were too. They admired his wisdom and his moderate approach and the advice that he gave to the Sanhedrin. But the question is, should we? be impressed. Was the advice of Gamaliel, was that good advice? Did he give this advice because he is a champion of the truth? Because he is a man of moderation? Because he was an instrument in God's hand to establish the truth? Was Gamaliel really on the side of the apostles? Well, brothers and sisters, let's take a look this morning at this advice of Gamaliel and let's see how the truth of the gospel always prevails. In spite of sinful man who is so easily led astray, God's truth will always triumph. And that's what we'll see here as well. The theme for this sermon is as follows. Despite Gamaliel's cunning advice to the Sanhedrin, the apostles proclaim the truth of the gospel. And then we look at two things. First of all, the perversion of the truth, and then secondly, the proclamation of the truth. In this passage, it is the first time in the Bible that Gamaliel's name is mentioned, but it is not the only time. Paul also mentions his name in Acts 22, verse 3. He writes there, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. He said this when he made his defense before the Jews. Why? Why did he mention his name? Well, because he wanted to use that to his advantage. Gamaliel was held in a very high repute. That's even the case today. In the Mishnah, which is still read and studied by the Jews, the following is said about him. When Rabban Gamaliel the elder died, the glory of the law ceased, and purity and abstinence died out at the same time. And so we do well to ask who this man is. 
that will also give us an idea of what the early Christians were up against at the hands of the people and forces that were at play in the leadership of the nation. Within Judaism, there were different sects. The main ones were the Sadducees and the Pharisees, which in turn were divided into different factions. Even though the Sadducees were by far the largest group, during the time on earth of Christ, when Christ was on earth, we do not hear too much about them. And that is because the conflict of the early Christians was mostly with the Pharisees. We also read about the conversion of some prominent Pharisees. Think about Nicodemus, for example, and of course, Paul himself. We do not read about any Sadducees being converted. That Pharisees were converted, no doubt, had to do with the fact that they were closer in their doctrine to Christianity than the Sadducees. The Sadducees, for example, did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. The Pharisees also considered the law as inspired and binding. They, of course, went much beyond the law, but the Pharisees had a high regard for the law. The Sadducees didn't. And unlike the Pharisees, they also did not take any reference to angels or to the life hereafter, literally. Another difference between them was that the Sadducees identified strongly with the temple and the sacrificial rituals, whereas the Pharisees were more closely tied to the synagogues and the rabbis. For that reason, the priests tended to belong to the sect of the Sadducees, as did the rest of the aristocracy. The Pharisees were a different class of people compared to the rest. They were the learned ones. They took scripture very seriously and practiced their religion in a very pious way and also in a public way. And because of that, they were not very popular with the people. They kept themselves aloof from the ordinary man on the street. Indeed, the name Pharisees actually means separated ones. And they held the ordinary people in contempt. In John 7, verse 49, the Pharisees are quoted as saying about the people, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Well, the feeling was mutual. People also despised them. Gamaliel, however, was somewhat of an exception. People were quite receptive to him. That's because he had a pastor's heart. He would, for example, take measures to protect the rights of the widows and the divorced women. The people noticed that he had a kind disposition and that he was not as legalistic in the interpretation of the law. And so they had respect for him. He was different from the others, even from those who received their education from the same school that he did. For within Phariseeism itself, there were two schools, two main schools of teaching at the time. You had the school of Rabbi Shammai and the school of Rabbi Hillel. The school of Shammai was the strictest. It was puritanical and dogmatic, emphasizing maximum requirements. The more influential Hillel school, although also quite legalistic, was somewhat more concerned about the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. 
Now, Gamaliel belonged to that school, to the school of Hillel, and he became a prominent leader in it. As a matter of fact, he was actually born into that school, being the grandson of Rabbi Hillel, who was the founder of that school. And so he was a man of moderation, not only by temperament, but also by upbringing and education. And so this respected and kind scholar stands up in the council and the Sanhedrin and had his say. First, he asks the apostles and others not directly involved to go out of the meeting. Gamaliel wants the attention of all of them. And he especially wants to have the ear of the Sadducees who make up the majority of the Sanhedrin and who are the politicians. He wants to convince them that they will make a big mistake if they kill the apostles. After the men were put outside, he says to the assembled meeting, men of Israel, take care what you do with these men. And then he goes on to give the council a lesson in history. He first mentions the name of Thudas. He was a revolutionary. He says, look at what happened to this man. He was killed and his followers were dispersed. The whole movement came to nothing. And then he adds the example of a certain Judas the Galilean. He too was a revolutionary with a strong following, but also that movement came to nothing. And so based on that information, what's his advice? Well, it's the obvious. He says, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But then he adds, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Up to this point, the Sanhedrin had considered only one possibility, namely that these disciples of Jesus are nothing more than revolutionaries, rebels, and that they needed to be eliminated. Gamaliel, however, is more cautious. He knows the claims of the apostles and that they are convinced that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. He has also heard about the many miracles that he and his, and his apostles did. And he knows the following that they have and how popular they are. And so like a good and careful scholar, he does not want to dismiss those claims. He cautions patience and he persuades the council to do the same. And Gamaliel's calm and logical approach wins the day. They take his advice and in order and order the accused instead to be flogged and to be released. This seems like good advice, doesn't it? But is it? Well, brothers and sisters, this was the wrong advice. It was cowardly advice. It was actually evil advice. For in the first place, just think about to whom he compares the Lord Jesus and their followers. He compares them to Thudas and to Judas the Galilean. Now what kind of men were they? Revolutionaries. These men were rebels who took up arms against the government. and They were interested in establishing an earthly kingdom. And they wanted to do that through violence means. Is that the kind of man Jesus was? 
Is that to whom he should be compared? Think about it. Is that how the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to conduct themselves? When Peter and the apostles stated that they must obey God rather than men, did they mean that they did not recognize thereby the authority of the government? Not at all. On the contrary, they clearly did in every respect except when they were ordered not to tell the truth about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's all they wanted to do. All they wanted to do was to bring the glorious gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. They were not rebels. Christians aren't rebels. That's not what the Lord Jesus taught them to be. They remember well what happened at the time of Jesus' arrest when Simon Peter had drawn his sword and had cut off the ear of one of the servants of the priests and the elders who came to arrest him. Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword and said to him and to all of them, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? A follower of Christ does not use force to bring the message of salvation. No, he comes with the sword of the Spirit. He comes with the word of truth. And the truth is much more powerful than any weapon here on earth than any atom bomb or a million atom bombs together. For what was the, what was the claim? Well, what was the aim of Christ and the disciples? They wanted to establish a spiritual kingdom, God's kingdom. And they wanted to do so through peaceful means. And that is why Christ also came with healing and compassion. He healed the sick and raised the dead as an indication of what is to come in the new age. And so did the apostles in the name of Jesus Christ. But those rebels caused death and destruction. They did exactly the opposite. And now Gamaliel cunningly makes a connection between Christ and those rebels. He knowingly misled the people. He knew that Christ and his apostles were not violent men. There was no evidence of that. But that didn't deter him. And the Sanhedrin fell for it hook, line, and sinker. How come? Because that neatly fitted their own agenda. Gamaliel knew that. Why did Gamaliel do what he did then? Well, he acted out of, many, for, for many reasons, he acted out of fear. He was afraid of the backlash of the people that the apostles were put to death. As the clever man that he was, he knew how to read the mood of the people. As we know from verse 26, they were ready to stone them. But by killing the apostles, at most, they would put their own lives in danger. And in the least, they would lose their influence with them. And exactly, that was their greatest fear. For ultimately, that's what it was all about. They were jealous. They were jealous of the many followers that they had. And therefore, they were blinded by their jealousy. They were not interested in the truth, but they were interested in their own popularity, in their own standing among the people. They wanted to be admired. 
They wanted to be admired for their abilities, for their power. They wanted to be able to subjugate the people. And now there was a different influence and they couldn't stand it. And so that is why Gamaliel counseled a different approach. And through his smooth talk and clever argumentation, he knew how to get the Sanhedrin and the people on side. And in this way, he also saved the day and enhanced his own reputation. But actually, think about what he said. It didn't make any sense. It only gave the council the excuse to go back from a dangerous situation. But his reasoning was seriously flawed. He said that if the work of the apostles were of men, that it would fail. That sounds logical and pious. But is that true? For what's wrong with such reasoning? Well, in the first place, it discounts the power of sin and the devil. For if that were true, why would that not apply to all human enterprises and man-made religions? Think of the Muslims of today. They have been part of the world scene for some 1,500 years, and yet that religion shows no sign of dying out. On the contrary, it continues to make inroads. And think about Buddhism, which is much older, and Mormonism, for example, and other false religions. They continue to exist. Why? Only because of the power and the influence of Satan. Only on the last day will those false religions be eradicated. In the end, God's truth will be victorious. But now we still live very much in a sinful world. We live in the world of falsehoods. Satan today is still the prince of the world, as he is called in the Bible. His lies are much more readily believed than the truth of the gospel. Mark Twain once said that a lie runs around the world while truth is still putting on her shoes. The devil wants us to believe that the majority is always right and that there is power in numbers. And the devil wants to appeal to our feelings. But the truth belongs to those who let God's word and God's spirit through them and not their flesh and not their sinful desires. Because of our sinfulness, you and I are not immune from falling for such cunning tactics as shown by Gamaliel. We too are easily swayed by clever talk. And so how do you guard yourself against that? Well, as Paul says, or as John says in his first letter, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And John 4, verse 1. But what was Gamaliel's test of the truth? The popularity or lack of it of the movement of Jesus and the apostles. He tells the people to wait and see. He does not tell them to test it to see whether it stands the test of God's word. And that was his biggest mistake. He counseled neutrality in certain situations that may be a good advice. But here we are dealing with matters of life and death. We are speaking here about eternal life. Christ and the apostles came with the weight of God's word. And then you cannot be neutral. At every turn, Christ 
and also through his disciples and apostles showed that the scriptures were being fulfilled. But Gamaliel and the rest would not listen. Oh, sure, they too came with the scripture passages, but they used the scriptures like a drunk uses a street light for support rather than illumination. For how do you determine the truth? You do so by coming to the scriptures not with your own preconceived ideas. You let God speak to you rather than the other way around. You allow him and his Holy Spirit to come into your heart. You open up your heart to him. And you do not become a fence sitter as Gamaliel advised the Sanhedrin to do. The members of the Sanhedrin should have taken heart to the words of Elijah when he said in 1 Kings 18 verse 21, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Make up your mind. James says the same thing in, one, in chapter 1 verse 6 through 8, namely that he who is not convinced of the truth is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Camellia was a double-minded man. Why? Because he did not know the truth? No, he knew it. He just did not want to act upon the truth. He did not want to face the truth. He avoided it like the plague. He did not want to pay the cost for the truth that is Christ confronts you with your sin and your own unworthiness. And so what does he and the council do? They avoid the truth by sending the apostles away. But if you avoid something, it doesn't mean it disappears. And that is true especially of the truth. Nothing and no one can stop the truth. You cannot kill it. You cannot avoid it. That brings us to the second point, namely that the church and the apostles Proclaim the truth. Before they send the apostles away with the command not to speak in the name of Jesus, they have them flogged. Luke does not go into any detail here about the kind of beating that they get. Not all that important. What is important is that a gospel continues to be propagated. However, we know from antiquity what such a beating would have been like. No small thing. Not everybody survived such a beating. And once you hear a description of it, you will know why. According to the Encyclopedia Judaica, floggings were administered with a whip made of calfskin on the bare upper body of the offender, one-third of the lashes being given on the breast and the other two-thirds on the back. The offender stood in a bowed position with the one administering the beating, standing on a stone above him, and the blows were accompanied by the recital of admonitory and consolatory verses from Scripture. According, in accordance with Deuteronomy 25, verse 3, each offender would receive 40 lashes minus 1, so 39 lashes. They would be administered with full force. The skin would be broken. Blood would flow in abundance. It was a very real and hard punishment. But what is the reaction of the apostles to all this? You would think that then they would be bitter and angry men, for they were innocently punished. 
or at least you would think that they would be disappointed because of the treatment by their fellow countrymen and quite sad. But what do we read? We read that they rejoiced. They were not angry or sad. How is it possible? Well, congregation, it was possible only because these men were under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit made them focus on what is important to God in this kingdom. They knew that the life of a Christian is not always a bed of roses. There is suffering involved. And sometimes suffering for the sake of the gospel. And we see that throughout history. Thankfully, unless we go into countries hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we do not have to suffer like that today ourselves. We can serve God in freedom. Nevertheless, it does not mean that there is no suffering right now. There is. For as a Christian, we have to deny our flesh and our sinful desires. We can't just do what we like. And we live in a sinful world and because we live in a sinful world, we will not always be popular. On the contrary, we will receive resistance. The world does not want to hear the truth of the gospel. Does not want to hear the truth, period. And we suffer in many other ways. Our bodies are weak. Sometimes we have to suffer terribly to cancer, to inherited diseases, to other horrible afflictions. But we know that, as Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18, that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Already at the beginning of his ministry, the Lord Jesus said to the people in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Disciples also remember the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. It had only happened a short time before. No man can grasp the tremendous suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. He too was flogged in the most horrible way. And in the end they hung him on a cross. Terrible punishment. But the worst punishment that he received that he was forsaken by God and man and the terrible agony that he had to endure because of that. Why? Because he suffered for your sin and my sin. And we can only stand in awe of that great suffering for the sake of man. But now here stand the apostles. They know that the lashes they receive at the hands of their tormentors are nothing compared to what Christ had to withstand, and they bore it with gladness. And that is not just because they would in this way be identified with the Lord, their Lord and Savior. They went deeper than that. They realized their own sins. They realized that in reality they deserved to be beaten for they were sinful men. And in spite of that, they were allowed to live. Not just a little while longer on earth, but to live forever. What a great joy. What a great joy for you and for me as well. Is it any wonder that we read the following statement? Luke tells us day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. 
every day they proclaimed the good news of salvation. Not a day went by. Every day they went to the temple. And they did not just restrict themselves to the temple. They also witnessed in the homes. Wherever they went, they proclaimed the good news of salvation. And so let me ask you, brothers and sisters, is that also your experience? Do you witness of Christ every day? Oh, I don't mean that you have to go and stand on the street corner every day. But what about with those with whom you come into daily contract, your contact, your marriage partner, for example, your children, people at work? Do you communicate in one way or the other that you rejoice and are glad because Lord Jesus saved you from your sins? Do you walk humbly before God and your fellow man? You can be sure that the apostles did. And that's why they were also so effective. They told the truth, the truth about themselves, namely that there are sinful men in desperate need for redemption. And that is the message that had to go out into the world for that is the truth. Christ is the truth. Verse 43 speaks about preaching and teaching. Indeed, that is what proclamation is all about. A preacher is someone who announces the rule and the coming of the king. He is a herald, a herald of good tidings. He speaks only those words which the king has told him to say. Nothing more and nothing less. He also teaches. For the people must understand what to believe and what not to believe. How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news of salvation. But that's not just the preacher's task, it's your task as well. Don't be afraid. God, the truth, will never let you down. He will also be in the midst with you and me, in the midst of suffering. That's what he promises, and that's what also the apostles believed. And the Lord confirmed them in their faith. And he will do that to the end of the world when he comes again to take all those home who belong to him. To be safe and secure with him forever. Amen.